Hi, folks. I'm Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer, and welcome back to another edition of Growing Boulder, the show about you, an entertaining, informative, and hopefully motivating hour about improving the quality of your life. On today's show, one of the world's top experts on nutritional intervention says what you eat can, in large part, determine whether or not you'll get Alzheimer's. Wow. Also, the Renaissance man, a poet, singer, songwriter, college president and now author Dr. Sandy Shugart on his amazing life and his thought-provoking new book. Plus, the ambassador of love, the one and only president's announcer, and one of TV's top sitcom writers all prove that if you follow your heart, you'll never get lost. Well, it's been said many times that when you get really old, at least you have your memories. But sadly and often tragically, Alzheimer's is stealing even those in alarming numbers. Dr. Neil Barnard believes that our diet, what you eat, is the best prevention against dementia. Yeah, Bill, and he certainly has the credentials to back up what he says. He's an adjunct professor of medicine at George Washington University. He's president of the Cancer Project, president of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, and a leading advocate for good nutrition and nutritional intervention to cure whatever ails us. In fact, his research has revolutionized the treatment of type 2 diabetes. He's written 14 books, and his latest, Power Food for the Brain, shows how simple diet changes can make a huge difference in the health of your brain. Let's welcome Dr. Neil Bernard. How are you, Doc? I'm fine. It's great to be with you today. You know what? Just reading the intro, it invigorates people. It makes you feel like you're in control of this, and it's not just an arbitrary thing. Is that true? Yes, and I think it's really so important because whether we're talking about the memory issues that uh, you could have when you're 25 or 35, you know, we're losing our keys a little bit too often, or whether we're having uh, the concerns about memory problems late in life, foods and lifestyle do seem to play a huge part of this. Um, But for me as a physician, I'm finding that people by and large are unaware of it. They're unaware of it because the research on it is relatively new. And so I wanted to get the word out to say that maybe, maybe we don't have to have these tragedies that occur where, we, where, where our memories go and, and we really lose everything that, that matters to us. I think we can change that. And, you know, the topic is obviously very timely because there's been several research projects that have come out recently that say the number one fear that boomers have is no longer cancer. It's, in fact, losing their mind. Yeah, but we've had a chance. To, that's exactly right. What we've had a chance to look inside the human brain. And when people are developing Alzheimer's, what is happening is there are little tiny specks in the brain. They're, they're called amyloid plaques. But if you looked at them under a powerful microscope, they look almost like little, little balls of yarn or little meatballs almost. They're, they're abnormal and they're destroying the brain cells, we believe. But what seems to cause them to form are, A, there are certain uh, fats, uh, saturated fat and trans fats that are in foods, everyday foods that a lot of us eat, Um, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Secondly, uh, there are certain metals that we may get from either food or cookware. And if you skip those things, if you're able to to sidestep them, it looks like you can prevent probably 70 to 80% of cases of Alzheimer's disease. Boy, and if we ever needed a wake-up call, I mean, it's now, I, I was recently looking at a graph that was projecting the incidence of Alzheimer's just in this country over the next 30 years, you know, as most of us age. And it, I mean, it's horrifying. It's projected that that rise, I mean, it looks like a hockey stick. Is this the result of the fact that just more of us are moving into that age group? Or, or is it what you've talked about, the saturated fats and the way we eat? I think it's both. There are more and more of us. Uh, the baby boomers are, are reaching retirement age. But also, our diets, surprisingly enough, uh, despite the fact that we know more about nutrition than before, our diets are actually the worst that they have ever been in the history of this country. By that I mean people are eating huge amounts of the very foods that have the bad fats in them. The cheese all over the pizza is loaded. We, we think, oh, isn't that, doesn't that make it good? Well, that makes it very, very high in the saturated fat that in research studies increases the risk of Alzheimer's about threefold. Uh, donuts and other pastries have the trans fats in them, um, and that increases the risk maybe fivefold. So if, if we can learn to eat in a little bit different way, 
um, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, if those become our staples, so I go to the pizzeria and I say, no, you skip the cheese. Give me extra tomato sauce and give me the artichoke hearts and the mushrooms and the tomatoes and the hot peppers, then suddenly you've cut the bad fat out of your diet. And if we make those choices at each meal, we can dramatically cut the risk of this disease. At least that's what research suggests. You know, I, I want to hear more about, uh, you know, what we should and shouldn't eat. But but before we do, uh, you know, I think we get to be a certain age, and all of us, you know, have these moments when, when we get a little bit afraid. Because there are times, uh, you know, really at any age, when we lose our keys, we forget why we walked into a room. But when that happens beyond the age of 50 or 60, sometimes we worry that it could be the early stage of something bad. How can we determine if that's just, uh, you know, the, the result of stress and being tired, or if, in fact, uh, it could be something worse? Well, you're right. It, it can be lack of sleep. That's probably the most common reason at any age. It can also be from medications. It's surprising. Typical cholesterol-lowering drugs, which do have benefit, also can toy with your memory, in some cases quite severely. Um, and there are other contributors, too, like deficiencies in certain vitamins. So when a person has the occasional memory lapse, once every week or two you're having trouble with your keys, that's normal. If it's a daily memory issue, you ought to go see your doctor, and the doctor will test. There's a certain panel of vitamins that they look for to make sure you're getting enough B12, folic acid, and these other things to make sure that they're adequate in your blood. Um, and then if they're not, then they can take, take action. And then there are certain things that they look for to see if it could be Alzheimer's disease. There are, are specific uh, kinds of testing that they can do. Well, folks, you're sure listening at a great time. We're talking to Dr. Neil Bernard, and he's written a great book called Power Foods for the Brain, a book that affects us all because it's up to each of us as an individual to try to make sure that we live as long and as healthy as we can. Doc, one of the things that you mention in the book, it's kind of alarming, are metals like copper, zinc, and aluminum that are threats to our brain health. Where do those come from, and how do yeah, they hurt they're, they're coming both from food from cookware, sometimes even from vitamin supplements. They do build up in the brain. And if you think about a cast iron pan, if you left it outside for a couple days on your picnic table and it rained, it, it rusts. Well, these metals oxidize within your body. And when they do that, they damage the brain cells. So you need a little bit of iron for healthy nerves. You need a little bit of copper for enzymes. You need a little bit of zinc for nerve transmission. But if you're getting too much of these, they, we believe they, they damage the brain, and there's a lot of evidence that that happens. So you look under your sink, copper pipes. The water that sits in, your, in those pipes will, will accumulate copper, and you should uh, get a filter or, get, or drink bottled water. Um, if you're eating shrimp or lobster, good heavens, they are loaded with these metals, uh, you know, because they're living on the ocean floor and they, they, they eat things that are not necessarily so hygienic, and they, they uh, accumulate a lot of these. If you're consuming liver, it's the filter of a cow's body, and it, it ends up with huge amounts of these metals, both iron and copper. So that's where it's coming from. It's also coming from pots and pans. And once in Power Foods for the Brain, I lay out, here's where they are, here's how to find them, and if you choose, say, a stainless steel pan instead of the aluminum uh, fry pan or the cast iron pan, you're going to be doing your brain a favor. And there's uh, another dozen or so choices you can make that collectively have a huge effect. Doc, let's assume that, uh, you know, because I'm sure it's true, most of us haven't been eating like we should, and we do have some of these metals uh, in our brain. Uh, uh, is, is, there a, a, is there a solvent for them? Is there a way to get rid of them? Or, or can we only change and, and hope we've not already done damage? Okay, great question. Uh, the first thing to do is to what I do is I take people away from the animal products. Now, I grew up in Fargo, North Dakota. I come from a long line of cattle ranchers. But I have to acknowledge that the healthiest people in the world are the people who don't eat the, the meat and the liver at all. If you just set that aside, and if you're having a vegetarian meal, that is going to help you gradually avoid the excess. If you're in a little bit of a hurry and you say, I think I'm iron overloaded, the best thing to do is to go to the Red Cross and donate blood. I know it sounds funny, but it reduces your excess iron rather quickly. Uh, plus, you're giving it to somebody else who can actually use it. Um, there are more drastic treatments. There's something called chelation, which is used for lead poisoning and aluminum poisoning. But I don't recommend that for your average person because it has some dangers. 
You know, I was going to ask you, Doc, we talked about the foods to avoid. I was going to ask you about what we should go for, but I'm assuming you're going to say, you know, fruits and vegetables. And I'm terrified of those because we don't know if they're covered in pesticides and poisons. It's hard to know what's good for you. Well, you're right. The vegetables and fruits are good. And there are certain ones where you do want to go organic. Um, For example, green leafy vegetables, spinach and collards and kale, they are loaded with what's called folate, which is a B vitamin that protects the brain. In fact, folate gets its name from the word foliage, meaning leafy vegetables. I do look for organic uh, with those because uh, I, I do think it's a better choice if it's ever available. Uh, beans, uh, bananas are loaded with vitamin B6, which is also a brain protector. Uh, soy milk is often fortified with vitamin B12. There are many cereals that have B12 added, and that is a very highly absorbable B vitamin that also protects the brain. And in fact, researchers have shown that older folks who are having memory problems, who get then a lot of folate and B6 and B12, it tends to reverse those brain problems and actually tends to reverse the brain shrinkage or at least slow it down to a great degree. So I I don't think there's a time when it's ever too late to make a change. And, you know, folks, we are all worried now about trying to to maintain uh, our mental health as we get older. His book is called Power Foods for the Brain, and and basically anything that you put in your mouth, whether it's a medication, whether it's a supplement, whether it's the food that you eat, the water that you drink, can have harmful effects. And the book tells you what to avoid, uh, but maybe even more importantly, what you can eat. And, And, Doc, in the final 45 seconds, other than diet, what are the lifestyle choices, in your estimation, that are most important? Important to our brain health. Lace up your sneakers because the, if you get your heart beating a little faster through a brisk walk, um, the oxygen and nutrients get to the brain. I say start with 10 minutes three times a week, then gradually increase uh, from there. And don't forget to go to sleep. Biggest violator. People stay up too late. If you're not sleeping, you're going to have trouble with your memory tomorrow. And one final takeaway, Doc, what would you leave people with? Uh, don't wait. The healthiest people are the, are the folks who get away from the animal products and really bring in the vegetables. Tonight, when you go to an Italian restaurant, have them top your spaghetti with the artichoke hearts and mushrooms and tomato sauce. Skip the meat. Uh, you're going to do better. The good news is, folks, that it is up to us. It is in our control, not somebody else. You don't have to wait on anything else. Take charge of your health and your life. Dr. Neil Bernard has laid it out in the book, Power Foods for the Brain. Thanks, Doc, for an invigorating talk, and let's eat healthy out there. Coming up next, Orlando's official ambassador of love with the key to happiness. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com. Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit GrowingBoulder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. And as you know, we love to tell the stories of, of reinvention, stories of men and women who eventually created the life they always wanted to, but it took a while because they just, at first, you don't know how to make it happen. You really don't. And Donna Dallas Bill is an example of one such story. A successful executive for decades, Donna could be retired and probably would be if not for a life-changing conversation that she had with Andy Warhol years ago. Warhol's words helped change her life, and now her words are helping others change theirs. Donna's message is simple and yet profound. It's a big night at the Grand Bohemian Gallery. Hundreds are here to see the latest works from Donna Dallas. I am a collector. I have probably about 10 pieces of her artwork. Totally self-trained and absolutely self-assured, Dallas uses acrylics, ink, pencils, oil pastels, found objects, anything that catches her eye and pleases her fancy. And forget the stereotype of the tortured artist. Her creative process is less of a struggle and more of a love fest. My art just happens. My art comes out of my heart every day. 
Her paintings hang in galleries all over the world and in the private collections of Cher, Celine Dion, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and many others. It seems everyone loves a great painting with a good vibe. The energy that she puts into her art, it really does come out and when, when you hang it on the wall. I always believe that each piece will find its way to the person that it's meant to be with. And tonight, many of her pieces are finding their way home. Dallas learned to love the arts from her mother, who was also a painter. That art gave her such a sense of serenity and peace. It really started to call me as well. And I probably was 13 years old, maybe 14 years old. And I used to say, Mama, one day I'm going to go to art school and be an artist. She never made it to art school, pursuing a career in the entertainment industry right out of high school. She ran major venues, eventually becoming executive vice president of Ticketmaster. But she never forgot her dream of becoming an artist, a dream reawakened when Andy Warhol asked her a single question. Are you an artist? Yes or no? And if you're an artist in your heart, then be the artist. And I, I, I've never forgotten those words. Now, I didn't take the advice immediately. But I knew at that time that I was going to pick up that paintbrush and go. It took a few decades, but Dallas finally committed herself to letting the artist inside come out. I think that we do have certain things inside of us that call us. And I think my calling has always been, go for it. Making a major life change is never easy, and sticking with it even harder. Dallas learned to be fearless from years of observing the entertainment and sports stars that she worked with. I had the great privilege of working with Vince Lombardi when he coached the Washington Redskins. Ted Williams was a general manager of the Washington Senators. Uh, so I was around these people. Dallas not only paints, she owns her own consulting business, has produced her own CD, is chairman of the downtown arts district, lectures at a local university, and supports countless charitable causes. Her dedication to the community caught the eye of Mayor Buddy Dyer, who wanted to find a way to leverage her community presence. And I said, well, you know, President Nixon did appoint Pearl Bailey as the ambassador of love for the United States of America. So. Let's just think about that. <laughs> and he did. A few months later at a public event, the mayor surprised her with a formal proclamation. Donna is the official ambassador of love for the city of Orlando. And oh my gosh, I, I was emotional. Everybody in the room was emotional or we clapping. It's hardly a ceremonial title. Madam Ambassador works tirelessly to bring the community together through arts and culture. We're the only city in the USA with the official ambassador of love and, and I'm spreading the love. Dallas not only paints the love, she spreads the love with her well-known and highly desired crystal heart blessings. Thank you. Know the heart travels with you and love surrounds you and I love you. So one heart at a time, we're sharing love and giving love and lifting up the world to be better. Yes, this is an art opening, but more than that, it's a love story wrapped in a lesson for us all. The moral of the story is really follow your heart. Just follow your heart. It's in there. Your purpose and your passion is in there. My message is love. It's always been love, and it's a great gift that I've been given, and I cherish it, and I love it. I love the love. Boy, another example that, uh, you know, this life stage after the age of 50 and 60 and even 70 can be the best ever if you just find a way to do what you like to do. Donna Dallas, another example of a former executive who not only reinvented herself and created a brand new career, but more importantly, created a way to make a living that she feels called to do. What a great example. How long ago, Mark, was it? Or still today, there are a lot of people that dread what's coming, that dread what's about to happen. Here's a woman who loves the love. And at a time when a lot of people are retiring, Donna has two rewarding jobs. She's a painter 
painter and an ambassador. And neither one of them really did she ever plan on. She was simply open to the possibility. And when you do that, amazing things can happen. So if you'd like to see a video of Donna Dallas doing her thing, which really you need to do, just go to growingbolder.com. And once you're there, we'll also link you to her site for more information about one fantastic person. Is there anybody out there who has not tried to change their diet to lose weight or get healthier? If we all want to do it, and since there are so many books on how, why is it so hard for so many of us to succeed? Well, maybe we're focusing on the wrong part of the problem. Did you ever think of that? Here to explain is registered dietitian and nutritionist, Dr. Susan Mitchell. Hey, thanks, Bill. Hi, foodie friends. I recently heard an interview with weatherman Al Roker where he was talking about his weight and that he had to come to a point where he was ready for change. Do you have dreams and goals except your butt gets in the way? No, not that B-U-T-T butt. I'm talking about the B-U-T butt that keeps you stuck in a rut and prevents you from moving ahead, reaching your goals, and making dreams come true. Okay, you know the butt. You'd like to take that spinning class, but your schedule is already jammed. Or you feel exhausted and need to get more sleep, but you need to do the laundry, wash the dishes, so sleep just never seems to happen. And why are you looking at me when you say that? I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. The reason that we fail isn't as much about what's in our own stomachs as it is what's in our minds, that we sabotage our own efforts by making excuses. So how do we change that? No, Bill, let this be the week that you kick the butt out of your life and you have a mental boot camp with yourself, an up-and-close personal inventory, if you will. You have to take a hard look at your day-to-day life and decide what must be addressed, changed, adapted, deleted, whatever, so that you focus on what really matters to you. So first, think about how you spend your time. Let's say you want to eat healthier. Designate time in your calendar every week to plan, shop, and cook. Otherwise, it's just too easy to grab takeout or fast food when you have no plan. Create these windows of opportunity so there are no excuses. You know, I try to do this either Saturday or Sunday almost every single week. And typically, I'll make something like chili or lasagna, manicotti. I need things that will give me leftovers for another meal. Then I'll also cut up a big bowl of fruit. I'll roast a chicken for sandwiches to take to work. Remember, you've got what it takes to make those dreams happen. The butt has just been in the way, blocking your success. No more excuses, huh? Dr. Susan Mitchell. Coming up next, a true Renaissance man, Dr. Sandy Shugart, blends two careers one as a poet and singer songwriter, and the other as a college president. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. Hi, Mark Middleton with Bill Schaefer. This is Growing Boulder, and our next guest is somebody we should have had on this program and our TV show a long time ago. Because, folks, I cannot begin to tell you how many people have asked us, do you know Dr. Sugart? You should get him on because this is one very remarkable man, a modern-day Renaissance man. Yeah, one of the reasons people say that is because he's done an unbelievable job blending two entirely different careers. One is a poet, singer-songwriter, and another as a college president. And now he's the author of a new book on leadership called In the Crucible of Work, Discovering the Interior Life of an Authentic Leader. And don't we need more information on that today? So let's welcome, finally, Dr. Sandy Shugart. How are you doing, Doc? Doing great, thanks. Thanks for making time for us today. There are so many books that are out there today on leadership. What led you to write another one, and how is it different from what's out there? Well, there are a lot of great books on leadership, and I've read lots of them, just as you have. 
most of them are about technique. It is what leaders do every day to be effective. This book is really more about uh, the interior life of a leader. That is who you're becoming while you do the hard work of leadership. People who take on additional responsibility for others in the world sometimes feel like they're in the middle of a crucible, a place of heat and pressure and reactivity. And the thesis of the book is that uh, your work forms you more powerfully than you form it. And if you're not careful, you'll wake up someday and discover you're deformed. Hmm. And the antidote to that is to do your interior work first so that who you're becoming uh, as you lead is someone you really want to be. And speaking of that, Dr. Sugar, so many of the more well-known leaders out there appear to have very large egos, and, and you read a lot that that's required. Uh, they're, they're, they're often renowned for their egos, in fact, but you say in your book that really most of the best leaders are actually defined by their humility. That's absolutely correct. I think the real key to leading people is that they have to want to follow you, and the way that folks uh, choose to follow is on the basis of the character of the leader more than the, the technique. Well, let's talk about the character for just a second. In, in, in your estimation, what else besides humility make up the hallmarks of, of a great leader? Well, uh, you have to have a number of gifts, I think, and not all leaders are alike. Um, each brings a sort of a special package of, of gifts and experiences to the work, but essential to the work is that a person have a deep sense of calling to the work. That is, uh, someone who is leading not because they want to gratify their ego or uh, be important or earn fame and glory, but uh, someone who's deeply committed, beyond committed, just completely sold out to the mission of the organization, whatever that mission might be, and keeps their heart and their head focused on achieving the mission rather than achieving greatness. We're talking with Dr. Sanford Sandy Sugar, who has written a new book about leadership called In the Crucible of Work. Uh, he, in fact, has demonstrated his leadership uh, capabilities uh, as president of Valencia Community College. Doc, you led Valencia to be recognized as the top community college in the nation for which you were awarded the first ever Aspen Prize for Community College Excellence. First of all, congratulations. And other than your uh, leadership, why did Valencia win? Well, it's a great award because it's not based on, um, you know, your popularity or your beauty or some subjective judgment. The award's really based on results, and the Aspen Institute studied all 1,100 community colleges in America on the basis of the results they were getting, results in terms of helping people to find great work and earn good salaries, uh, graduation, transfer to senior institutions, and notably closing the gaps in academic performance among students who come from very different neighborhoods and circumstances. Uh, all of those were important outcomes for Valencia for the last decade or more, and we've just been able to move the needle on those numbers pretty significantly. As you can imagine, uh, it, while leadership is important, what's really core to that is the culture of the organization, uh, again, a place that's deeply focused on mission and purpose rather than other things. Yeah, Valencia is, is quite a place, and it seems like uh, community colleges in general have been exploding recently. What, what do you think the benefits and attraction of attending a good community or state college are these days? Well, you know, a core to that is the vision of excellence. Um, higher education for a long time has believed itself important because excellence was equated somehow to exclusivity. That is, the harder it is to get into the college, the better the college must be. But uh, community colleges sort of turn that value proposition on its head and say, what makes us excellent isn't who comes to be served, but how we serve them. Uh, and as Jefferson said, uh, geniuses will be raked from the coals. So we believe it's not the pedigree of the learner, but the commitment of the learner that makes them a great student. And we try to partner with our learners so that they can achieve all, all and even more than they believe possible. Folks, uh, we are talking to an esteemed academic leader who's written a new book, but I encourage you to go to YouTube. In fact, we'll link to it from Growing Boulder uh, and, and, and do a search for Dr. Sandy Sugar and listen to this guy perform, because as we mentioned in the intro, he is a, a poet and a singer-songwriter. And, and of course, uh, you, you also are a much-in-demand speaker. And, and Dr. Sugar, we understand at times you actually incorporate your, your performance, your, your singing and songwriting into speeches. That's true. I, I uh, learned a long time ago that great speeches don't change very much. Uh, the, the logic and the information you share 
can be appreciated in the moment of the speech, but what you're really after in, in a speaking engagement is to change people's lives and their whole belief systems. And those things don't change without the presence of some kind of emotion. And so for me, the use of poetry and music is really to invoke people's deeper emotions as they contemplate the content of the speech. So where does your passion lie, Dr. Sugar? What makes you excited these days to wake up in the morning? Well, my passion for 40 years uh, has come from my relationship with Jesus Christ. So uh, I'm a person of faith, and my commitments all flow from that central commitment. That means commitment to family, commitment to doing good work in the world, and commitment to serving other people. What is your is your overall message? Because you're a guy who obviously has a voice, and and, and you like to use it in many different ways. And, and I know you tailor your speeches to the audience, you tailor your books to your readers, but is there an overall message to your work that we can learn from? Well, I hope so. The, uh, the message for me all through my life has been to be whole, to be myself and all of myself wherever I am. Um, most people, I think, find themselves living their lives as a series of roles. So you have a, a person that you are at work and a person that you are at home and a person with your friends, and often those different persons aren't particularly well integrated. And uh, I was moved by a poem, actually, uh, late in my teens, whose message was to be fully yourself all the time. And um, th- that's why music, poetry, work, family, all those things run together in one life for me. Um, so I guess what I'd encourage people to do is to go to their interior workshop every day and be attentive to the whole person that they are and that they're becoming, and that's shaped by all those other things they do. So what you do in the world every day becomes material for your workshop, and what you do in your workshop every day allows you to connect your inner work to your outer work. Mm. Well, one of the things that we've learned, Dr. Sugar, over the years is that great leaders lead by example. And if anybody does that, it's you. And we want to thank you for the example that you've given not just us, but these young men and women who come to Valencia College and want to work their way into the real world and make a difference. And touching lives is the greatest thing any of us can do. And that's what happens, folks, when you reach out beyond yourself and dare to want to make a difference. The book is called In the Crucible of Work. Our thanks to our guest, Dr. Sandy Sugart. Coming up next, 85-year-old Charlie Brotman, the president's announcer from Ike to Obama. He's the guy they turn to for their inauguration parade. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect deceive me into... I'm Bill Schaefer along with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. And our next guest has what is arguably the most unique and coveted job in public announcing. We're going to talk to a veteran PR executive who has been the president's announcer for 63 years. Yeah, that's an amazing record. He's the guy behind the microphone for every inaugural parade in Washington, D.C. since 1957, back in the days of Ike Eisenhower. Barack Obama's second inauguration was the 16th time he's been in the announcer's chair for an inauguration. Let's welcome the president's announcer, Mr. Charlie Brotman. Hey, Charlie. Hi, Mark. Hi, Bill. Delighted to be on your show. Well, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us. How in the heck did you get this amazing job? (laughs) A wonderful question. It's one of these things where I went to an announcing school. I wanted to be a sports announcer, and it was in Orlando, Florida, and the Washington Senators, the, the the, the baseball team in Washington uh, had spring training just outside of Orlando, and I interviewed a few people, including the owner of the team, 
and the uh, Calvin Griffith, the owner, says, Charlie, uh, you, you just interviewed me and I understand that you're from Washington, D.C., and we're looking for an announcer uh, at Griffith Stadium. Are you interested? And uh, that led to me being the announcer at uh, Griffith Stadium in 1956, and is traditional uh, in Washington, the first pitch to start the game is always from the President of the United States. So I introduced President Eisenhower, and as part of my responsibility, I met the President on the field and introduced him to a lot of the players in the dugout and the locker room and got in the the baseball that he'd be throwing out. And I thought that would be the end of it. But for five minutes, I was the president's pal. And now it's November of 1956, and I get a call from a woman who says, Are you Charlie Grotman? I said, Yes, ma'am. She says, Well, I'm calling from the White House. You must have impressed the president. He asked me to contact you to see if you'd like to introduce him again. And I said, Wow, what an honor. Absolutely. Just tell me. Where and when? Well, the where is going to be on Pennsylvania Avenue, and the when is January 20th, uh, 1957. And I said, I'm a native Washingtonian. That's the presidential (laughs) parade, the inaugural parade. She said, that's right, sir. You'll be the president's announcer. Wow. What an incredible... What an incredible... Ordinary guy being the president's announcer, I can't believe it. And something else, Charlie. I thought, well, that's the end of that. But when Kennedy came into the White House, and here's a a younger man, very aggressive, good-looking, and very knowledgeable, and so they went through their files in those days. It was not the computer, it was the, these little files that you index cards, and they saw the name Charlie Brotman, announcer, and they called me and said, look, we've never done an inaugural parade before, but would you be interested in being the announcer again? And so that's been going on since 1957. All the new presidents that come in uh, seem to... Contact me somehow, and I'm, I'm now you, we're, we're talking about uh, Eisenhower and Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Carter, uh, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush again, and Obama. And each time I would get a call, basically saying, "Aren't you the guy who?" Yes, I'm the guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'd like for you to do it again. Hey, and, hey, Charlie. Do you ever get used to that, or every time they call you, do you pinch yourself and say, I can't believe it's me? Absolutely, positively. I, I cannot. Here I am, just an ordinary citizen, if you will, and here I, I, I'm introducing the President of the United States. Is this for real? Don't pinch me. I don't want to wake up. <laughs> And to be able to do it, Charlie, as you have said, through, you know, one uh, president after another, uh, you know, in a town that is built upon politics, that they all want you is an amazing. Can I ask you a personal question? Positively. How much money did they pay you? How much money do you make to be the president's announcer? (laughs) The answer is zero. Uh, They have every time they come in. The, the new group, it's uh, Charlie, Charlie, please, uh, we have a limited budget, but we we got to have you as the announcer. How much do you charge? And I said, it is such an honor to be a part of this tribute to the president of the United States. I would pay you to let me do it. And I've never gotten a pen out of it. A lot of beautiful memories. Let me ask you about one memory, because somebody told me that when George W. Bush was inaugurated, that you prodded the president on the microphone to throw out the first pitch for a Washington Senators baseball game, and you had an interesting exchange with the Secret Service after that. What happened? Well, that was true. I'm, I'm a baseball announcer, and in Washington, the we hadn't had baseball 
uh, for like 33 years until 2005. It was just a coincidence that Bush was a former owner of a baseball team, and it, what happened, he was right below me. I'm, I'm kind of like three stories up, and but he was right uh, on Pennsylvania Avenue in front of me, and things had stopped, and I feel that it's my responsibility as the master of ceremonies to... Uh, inform and entertain, and nothing was happening. So I thought it was appropriate, Mr. President, you know, this is your uh, uh, obligation and your opportunity to throw out the first ball, which is just always happens in Washington. I know you're a baseball man, and uh, will you be throwing out the ceremonial first pitch? And he looked at me and kind of shrugged his shoulders a little bit, like, you know, I, I'm not sure at, at this point. And basically, it was, well, we, we certainly hope so. We're rooting for you. And about 60 seconds later, a big gentleman comes in, sees me with earphones and a microphone in front of my face, and says, are you the announcer? And I says, yes, sir. He says, well, I'm the Secret Service for the president, do not ever ask him any personal questions. Do not make a statement directly to the president. Do you understand? And I said, I'm starting to. <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought, maybe I better not do this anymore. Well, folks, uh, Charlie, we could go on and on. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, you are indeed, sir, a national treasure. Folks, we've been talking with the president's announcer, 85-year-old Charlie Brotman, who has done it for 63 years and counting. And Charlie, here's hoping there are many, many more for you. Coming up next, a veteran sitcom writer who's become an expert on personal reinvention. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the UCF College of Medicine, where physicians, scientists, and teachers are discovering innovative solutions for today's medical challenges and bringing them to you. Learn more about the college's physician practice at ucfhealth.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. This is Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Shaver with Mark Middleton. And our next guest began his writing career back in, wow, 1976. He's been a staff writer and a producer on more than 350 episodes of sitcoms for every television network. His credits include head writer and executive producer of Laverne and Shirley, The Golden Girls, as well as co-writing and producing two Gary Shandling specials for Showtime. Yeah, Billy, he's not just done it. He's done it well. He's been honored with multiple Emmy, Golden Globe, and Cable Ace Awards. Uh, he's won a prestigious Writers Guild Award. He's written, produced, and performed on his own web series, Boomer Alley. He's hosted his own radio show, and he's written two novels. Man. Yeah, we wanted to get him on the show because he is a talented, interesting guy who appears to be fearless and knows a little something about the process of personal reinvention. Let's find out more as we welcome Mark Sotkin. Hey, Mark, how are you? Well, it just sounds great when you guys say it. You know? <laughs> You've done a lot of stuff there, Sotkin. Yeah, I've been pretty busy, it sounds like. <laughs> uh, you, you know, I've seen some pictures of you. You must have started awfully young because you don't look to be very old to have done all you've done. Well, you, you, know, you have a choice. You can also use the same headshot you've been using for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> you know? That, that is the fountain of youth. <laughs> there, there you go. You know, whenever we get a successful TV person like yourself on who has put some time, energy, and money into creating content that actually targets the 50-plus market, we always start by asking, because it bugs us, what the heck is the matter with Madison Avenue? We're continually amazed here that advertisers, marketers, and major media still seem to not really understand the power of our demographic. From your perspective, is that at all changing, Mark? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, and it's frustrating. Uh, you know, I, I see the same statistics you see about 
power of the size of this demographic and that we still have, some of us have uh, uh, money to spend, but the reality is when you start dealing with uh, agencies and with advertisers, there, there isn't a lot of money being directed at this demographic. Now let's look about at you for just a second, Mark. Because I, you know, all of these different things that that Mark says that you're involved in, they all they're all in industries that are constantly about the next big thing, the new flavor that's coming out. But you, you're a guy who's been able to hang in these industries, reinvent yourself, and and really be an effective force there. How have you been able to do all that? You know, it's uh, a lot of it is luck in that uh, you know comedy is a pretty unique thing. And uh, as long as you can make enough people laugh, uh, there's going to be enough people who want to hear what you're talking about. So, uh, that, you know, that, uh, and the funny thing is really just luck. You know, which line did you get on at the very beginning? Um, and I was lucky enough to be on that line. So, uh, but it is, you know, you talked a little bit about it in the introduction. There is an element of courage of saying, okay, I'm leaving this, and I'm going to, you know, right now I'm developing two web series um, because it's obvious that that's where it is. And also, uh, there, is obvi- there is ageism in Hollywood, and the chances of me creating a television show or being on staff of a television show at this, at this age uh, is highly unlikely, um, and, and in some ways for good reasons. Um, I'm not going to be funny at 2 o'clock in the morning at the rewrite table anymore. <laughs> uh, I'm going to be asleep. So, um, so some of it is, is just saying, okay, it's time to move along. I get that, but herein lies the frustration, Mark. Uh, so much has changed, you know, with, with, the, with the expansion of, uh, of, of digital cable channels, you know, both on the Internet, uh, satellite, uh, and now over the top on, on television network that, you know, content has always been king. You would think it would be supreme uh, and, and total ruler right now. And, and content for niche markets, particularly niche markets as large as the one that you're targeting, uh, would be highly desired. When's that going to happen? Well, you know, I think, I, I think it is happening. The trick today... Um, and one of the things I'm trying to address with the new things that I'm developing is, so how do you break through the noise? I mean, just having another YouTube channel, um, how do you break through that noise? We, it amazes me. Jerry Seinfeld has a web series on now, uh, and they're getting ready to put on the second season. The number of people who have no idea that Jerry Seinfeld has a web series amazes me. You know, when you talk about, when you ask people, hey, do you know that Jerry Seinfeld has a web series? Um, it's because it's so hard to break through all the noise. There's so much content. There's, you know, when, when people talk about the, the long tail effect, that you only have to really reach uh, a small audience, but it's worldwide, it's still hard to get, create that audience. You know, Mark, the difference, though, is the stuff you're doing. I mean, you, you know, you, sometimes the people, as we get older, we get pushed to the side because we don't have as much to say. You're a guy with a message. You're a guy with a point. You get out there, and you're, you're sharp, you're witty, you're quick, and you're just the kind of guy that you think that the attention would come to. First of all, how old are you, Mark, and, and, and do you feel like that as a writer? Do you ever feel like, look, give me the paper, let me step out there and do it? Well, so I, I'm 65 now, and... Um... You know, it's it's work. <laughs> you know, you still have to see what what is going on in the world and 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 have an attitude about it, and, and then still sit down at the word processor and figure out. So, how do I want to get this word out? Uh, so, you know, in terms of how do I feel? Um, yeah, I don't feel sixty-five, but. I am sort of a food nut, and I'm definitely a gym rat. So I think those two things work. You know, they keep telling us. You know, I, a little while ago I read a great book, uh, which is was called Younger Next Year, um, which was written by a guy in his 70s and his gerontologist. And you read the whole book, and it really comes down to two sentences, don't eat crap, work out hard. Mm-hmm. Well, I do both those things, and I think that really does have an effect on, 
your brain and how it works and how you look at the world and how active you are and all of those things. Well, you certainly aren't afraid to do different things. In fact, you've written two very quirky novels, The Comatose Adventures of Lenny Rose, uh, about an unhappy guy who actually gets hit by an 18-wheeler and then lives an amazingly happy life in a coma, and with time off for bad behavior, whose main character becomes one of TV's most successful, unhappy producer-writers. Uh, are either of these at all semi-autobiographical? No. <laughs> and I don't know any of those people either. Yeah. Are you unhappy, Mark? Uh, no, I'm inc- actually incredibly happy. Um, you know, it's funny. The, the comatose uh, adventures of Lenny Rose, that idea actually happened during a, uh, a rough period that I was happen- that I was having and just thought, boy, wouldn't it be just great to not have to deal with any of this for a little while? But then I started exploring, okay, well, what would happen if, if that happened? Um, and, and that turned out okay. Uh, you know, I, I'm pretty much uh, an optimist and, uh, you know, happy in my family life. And uh, in terms of the frustration and work, you know, I think it, because of the industry that, you know, we work in, I think at some point you come to realize that if you're going to get to do the good, fun stuff, there's going to be frustration. Anybody in the entertainment business knows you're going to hear no many, many, many more times than you're going to hear yes. Um, and you can either let that make you crazy or or not. Well, there are a lot of really cool, really smart, cutting-edge people out there. One of them is Mark Sotkin, and I'm sure you're going to want to follow up on what this guy's doing. Check him out and give him all the encouragement that he does need to keep going on and to keep kicking things around. You can do that at boomeralley.com. It's always fun. Great pleasure talking with you, Mark. Keep uh, fighting the good fight. We'll go after Madison Avenue together, and who knows, one day we might uh, find a mainstream venue in which to meet a very powerful demographic. Well, folks, that's a wrap. Another episode of Growing Boulder, and we really hope to see you back here next week at the very same time. And please tell your friends about the show because we know it is making a difference. And and why not? Because we can all use a regular dose of hope and inspiration. And, of course, we will be here to help you with that. And not just every week here on the radio show, but also on Growing Boulder TV, GrowingBoulder.com, and now Growing Boulder Magazine. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting, all rights reserved. This program was recorded live at the studios of WMFE Orlando. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Jackie Carlin, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producer is Katie Widrick. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Remember, when it comes to growing Boulder, it's not about age. It's about attitude. Crimson flames Said I.